Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic. Today we're looking at session five of Praying the Mass, our fifth and final session. We're uh, continuing uh, the Liturgy of the Eucharist and then concluding with the concluding rites. So it's wonderful to have you here. If you haven't listened to parts one through four, I highly recommend doing that first. Listen to them in order. It'll make a lot more sense. Uh, But it's wonderful to have you here. If you haven't yet subscribed, uh, you can do so for free on willwritecatholic.com. There is an option for a free subscription. Uh, If you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for a paid subscription and also get access to uh, a bit more written content every now and then. But all of the podcasts will remain free. Uh, If you would, please share this. Also rate it, review it on wherever you're listening to it. Uh, It would mean a lot. I really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's dive in. So we're picking up right where we left off with session four with the liturgy of the Eucharist. And I want to start today with a discussion of the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, particularly the Passover meal. So in the night before he was to suffer, our Lord Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his apostles. He chose this time and this meal to establish the new and everlasting covenant in his blood. At the Most Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, remember, we're not reenacting the Last Supper. One of the major differences between the Mass and the Last Supper is that the Last Supper anticipated in time the sacrifice of Jesus, and the Mass in time makes this saving reality present once again. In fact, we really can't understand the Mass as the Last Supper only. The Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ spans his entire saving action from the entrance into Jerusalem until his glorious ascension into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. It's impossible to separate the suffering of Christ from the Last Supper, as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was once and for all. God is outside of space and time, so the Holy Eucharist was established along with holy orders in the upper room before Jesus suffered and died. However, this is precisely because Jesus was making the cross present in his body and blood offered in the first Eucharist. The key to understanding the unity of the Last Supper and the cross is understanding the Jewish Passover meal. And uh, this kind of gets back to something we've talked about in the past couple weeks of anamnesis or liturgical actualization. Because at the Passover meal, the, the father of the house the father of the family would speak in the first person. He'd say, when the Lord drew me out of Egypt, recounting the narrative of Exodus. And so the blessings are read by the father of the house, and the first cup of wine is consumed, the cup of blessing. At the Passover meal, each adult at the dinner drinks four cups of wine. Every, every Passover meal, every year. And the four cups mark the journey of the Hebrew people. And, and they mark this. So the first cup marks that God will save his people from harsh labor, which he accomplished by the plagues. The second cup is God will save his people from servitude to the Egyptians. And then third, God will redeem his people, which the Jews saw in the crossing of the Red Sea. And finally, that God will take his people as a nation, which happened at Sinai. So in Jesus Christ, these four cups reveal their fulfillment. The first cup is fulfilled in various ways by Christ and in the book of Revelation as the full manifestation of God to man. 
the ten plagues inflicted on Egypt were directed against the various false Egyptian gods. And there's a lot of commentaries that you can look at to, to see that reality. And Jesus reveals to us everything that God wished to reveal about himself and frees us from harsh labor and toiling without purpose in matters of faith. The second cup is fulfilled by the incarnation. By the God-man entering into humanity, we are freed from the slavery of sin in order to share in his divinity. The third cup is clearly fulfilled in baptism, which is the definitive escape from the power of evil through the Red Sea. And then the fourth cup of the Passover meal marks the establishment of the people of God as a nation at Mount Sinai. As a nation, the exodus from Egypt out of slavery was brought to completion. The new exodus is the deliverance of men and women from the slavery of sin, right? The fulfillment of the exodus. And so the new Moses is our Lord Jesus Christ. In him is the fullness of redemption. His perfect sacrifice on the cross is begun at the Last Supper. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn of Franciscan University goes into exquisite detail about the relationship of the fourth cup, the Last Supper, and the cross in his 2018 book, The Fourth Cup, Unveiling the Mystery of the Last Supper and the Cross. And I'd highly recommend purchasing this book for a deeper dive. And the main theological point that's drawn is incredibly important. The fourth cup is absent from the Last Supper. Now, the absence of the fourth cup from the Passover meal would have been noticed by the apostles. They, they did this every year, right? Certainly, they would have been wondering why Jesus, who is, who is God, who is perfect, left the Passover meal incomplete and then went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Where, then, is the fourth cup consumed? Well, it's on the cross, the fourth cup in Passover marks the establishment of the people of God as a nation at Mount Sinai. And in the new Passover, the fourth cup is consumed on the cross when Jesus drinks wine mixed with gall and gives up his spirit, saying, it is finished. In Latin, those final words of Christ are consummatum est, which is really fitting because the fourth cup in Jewish tradition is called the cup of consummation. On the cross, Jesus establishes the new and everlasting covenant in his blood. The church is born from the cross. The people of God become such by entering into the death of Christ and thereby sharing in his resurrection. All of this is possible because of the outpouring of Jesus to the Father. And what we need to remember is that Mass is not a reenactment of the Last Supper. It's a coming present once again of the savoring mysteries of Jesus' Last Supper passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. So with that being covered, let's resume our walk through the Mass. The bread has been consecrated, and now in a similar way, our Lord took the chalice in His holy and venerable hands. He gave thanks to the Father, blessed it, shared the cup with His disciples. And why did our Lord do this? Right? He, he could have consecrated the bread and wine together and given that model to His apostles. As we looked at earlier, the Last Supper is not merely a symbolic meal. It's a real participation in the events to come of the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord. And God is the master of space and time, so this is not outside the possibility for him. When Jesus says, this is my body, which will be given up for you, we can hear that it's anticipating a future action. But the mystery comes when we realize that even though he's talking about a future action, he's saying that the bread in his hands is his actual body. 
The churches never believed these words to be metaphorical. That heresy didn't appear until the second millennium. We know that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is a sacrificial meal. And so, too, the Last Supper was a sacrificial meal, inseparable from the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what's the logic of the double consecration, this consecration of bread and wine separately? Well, when Jesus was making the cross present at the Last Supper, he did so in a real sacramental way, and in doing so made the Mass a memorial of the whole of the Paschal Mystery. When he took the chalice and said the words of consecration, for this is the chalice of my blood, he was essentially separating his body and his blood. And the result of the catastrophic separation of body from blood is death. So at every single Mass, the body and blood of Jesus Christ are separately made present under what looks like bread and what looks like wine, and the cross truly becomes present once again. And it's the same cross from 2,000 years ago, present again. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ comes present to us now, or we become present back then, however, however you want to look at it. And at the Last Supper, this was in an anticipatory sense, because the events of the passion and death of Jesus had not yet happened in terms of earthly time. And at the Holy Mass, these events are on the other side of that historical event. These events become present once more, or we become present to them. And of course, we know that the death of Jesus Christ is not the end. There is no cross without Easter. And our God knows the way out of death's decay. On the third day, he rose from the dead. His glorious resurrection becomes present at each and every single mass in a sacramental way during the fraction rite. And uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on today. So after the bread and wine have been consecrated, the priest says the Mysterium Fidei, the, the mystery of faith, which is new, in a sense, to the 1970 Missal. Previously, the phrase Mysterium Fidei didn't exist as an acclamation. Rather, it was part of the formula of consecration spoken inaudibly by the priest. It was included just after Novi et Aeterni Testamenti, uh, the New and Everlasting Covenant, and just before Qui Pro Vobis et Pro Multis et Fundetur, uh, which will be poured out for you and for many. So it would have read like this, The New and Everlasting Covenant the mystery of faith, which will be poured out for you and for many. So it's just those two Latin words. And originally, the use of the term mysterium fidei referred to the mysterious goodness of the material of Christ's blood being poured out. It was an early heretical sect, the Manichaeans, that held that the material order was bad and only that which is spiritual is good. So adding the mystery of faith into the Roman canon further showed how important the flesh and blood of Christ was and is, his material humanity joined to his divinity. The 1970 addition to the missal of, of that phrase, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again, seems to be fairly akin to the traditions of the Eastern liturgies. The liturgy of St. James, a Byzantine form of the liturgy that's, that's quite ancient, uh, says this, this do in remembrance of me, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do, show, ye, ye do show forth the Lord's death and confess his resurrection till he comes. So this shows that the memorial acclamation may be newer to the Roman rite of the church, but it's been used for ages in the Eastern Catholic churches. And we're recognizing that the Mass is an anamnetic reality. By way of a quick review from last week, anamnesis in Greek literally means 
bring to mind. We could also translate it as a deliberate recollection. Now, anamnesis in the context of the liturgy is more than just a memory or calling to mind in some abstract way, because we have to remember who's doing the remembering. It's, it's God's remembering, and so it's perfect. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the mediation of Jesus Christ, our high priest, the one sacrifice becomes present once again in an unbloody manner. The word anamnesis is what Jesus says in the words of consecration when he says, do this in anamnesis of me, do this in remembrance of me. So the mass is not a representation. It's a representation. It's the presenting once more the one and only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Anamnetically, we become present in these sacred events outside of space and time. Through our prayers and intention, we take part in the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. and We enter into the saving action of Jesus Christ in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And the priest is not only offering the sacrifice of the holy victim, he's presenting an oblation or an offering, right? We can remember from a couple weeks ago, it's, it's all of the offerings. All of creation is drawn up to the cross. All of our sufferings that are united to the cross. In the first Eucharistic prayer, the ancient Roman canon, the part which makes this explicit goes this way. Quote, in humble prayer, we ask you, Almighty God, command that these gifts be borne by the hands of your holy angel to your altar on high, in the sight of your divine majesty, so that all of us who through this participation at the altar receive the most holy body and blood of your Son may be filled with every grace and heavenly blessing. So as we mentioned last week, we recognize the sacrifice of the Mass as the representation of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection and ascension. And we acknowledge that he himself is the sacred victim offered on our behalf. And now we recognize the link between heaven and earth in the mass. What's offered here is not a request that the body of Christ be locally transferred from the altar to heaven. Jesus Christ is in heaven already. Therefore, the meaning of this oblation is mystical. And remember, that doesn't mean less real. It's not a prayer invoking the power of God like the epiclesis, which calls down the power of the Holy Spirit on the gifts. And interestingly, the word used in the official Latin text for these gifts is more literally translated as these things, right? All of these things. God sees the gifts. He has commanded the mass to be offered in this way, and they are priceless and pleasing to him. And so the word angel with a capital A that's used comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. Certainly all of the angels and saints are worshiping at the throne of God and taking part in the sacred and divine liturgy of the Mass. So who is this angel? St. Ambrose taught that an angel assists at Mass when Christ is sacrificed on the altar. From the text of the Roman canon, there's little information to identify who this angel is. Is it the guardian angel of the church? Is it St. Michael the archangel, the guardian angel of the Eucharist? Is it Jesus Christ himself used in a metaphorical sense? Does the word angel stand in for each and every angel and saint who takes part in the mystical supper of the Lamb? See, it seems clear to me that, that what's asked here is not possible to any creature, to any mere angel. Truly, what created being can accomplish what God has asked and what the church presents once again here? Besides being a messenger, the, the angel is the one sent by the Father. So it seems that the angel is 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one sent by the Father. In fact, Jesus is called the angel of great counsel in Isaiah 9-6. And we also see the Word of God, albeit before the Incarnation, active in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Right? God speaks and things come into being. We see the word of the Lord coming to Noah in Genesis 5 and 6. And there's a mysterious passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus says that Abraham uh, had seen him. And we can look at John eight fifty six. So the point of this mystical prayer is to show that the sacrifice of heaven is the sacrifice of earth. The altar on high in the sight of his divine majesty is the altar on which the sacrifice of the mass is being offered once more. Heaven and earth meet by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the mediation of the angel of great counsel, our Lord Jesus Christ. As St. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so the holy angel of the Mass's words is Jesus. So the priest ends the Eucharistic prayer with a, a final doxology. And a doxology is, is just a liturgical formula of praise to God. And, uh, and it goes this way. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. And this entire action, truly the whole of the Holy Mass, is the action of God. The chief mover in the liturgy is our High Priest, Jesus Christ. And so the final phrase given to us by the Church to close the Eucharistic prayer might seem like a simple declaration of praise, but it's the key to understanding Catholic worship. Let's hear it again. Through him and with him and in him, O God Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. And so we have a few questions that we really need to ask ourselves. Do we go to Mass primarily to receive the gifts that God wants to bestow upon us? This is the view that many within the Church hold. We go to Mass to receive Jesus in the Eucharist. And of course, if we're in a state of grace, we have the honor and profound privilege of receiving our Lord in the Eucharist. But is that the primary reason why we go to Mass? Is it to receive or is it to give? And the key to all this is this, this phrase, all glory and honor is yours. Right? We recognize that we have come to offer the sacrifice of the Mass with our full conscious and actual participation for one primary purpose, to give glory and honor to the Father. And through this co cooperation with grace, God makes us holy. Almighty God does not need our worship, but he delights in it. We have freedom and free self-gift of his son, of his son or daughter in his delight. If we come to Mass primarily to receive, we are not coming for the right reasons. If we say, I didn't get anything out of Mass today, then we have a wrong understanding of the sacred liturgy. Right? We shouldn't say, I did not get. We should instead say, did I give my all to my Heavenly Father? And so the Eucharistic prayer comes to a close, and we stand and pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us, the Our Father. And this perfect prayer, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, contains all five excellent qualities required for prayer. And, and those five are these. It is confident, ordered, suitable, devout, and humble. 
It's also clear here that the priest is leading this prayer in the person of Christ, head of his body, because his hands are in the Oron's posture of offering, that priestly action that's reserved to the priest alone at Mass. Uh, Now, next, the priest offers the peace of Christ to us, just as Christ offered his peace to the apostles on the day of the resurrection. When we read in John 20, 19, 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Then it's optional for the deacon or priest to invite the gathered faithful to turn to those in their immediate vicinity and offer the peace of Christ. And this is the action of one member of the body of Christ to another member of of the body of Christ. So we don't need to say the other person's name, give them a secret handshake or anything like that. We remember that Christ is now present on the altar and we offer that peace of Christ, which the world cannot give to the other members of the body of Christ around us. And we're also reminded here of the words of our Lord in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. As I mentioned last week and a little bit earlier alluded to, the priest then takes a piece of the sacred host and breaks it. We call this the fraction rite. And he puts the piece of the host into the chalice, which makes the resurrection of Jesus present in a powerful way. Body and blood are reunited, never to be parted again. See, we in the priest do not receive dead flesh. We receive the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity into our own bodies. And it's interesting to note here again that, is, that our posture changed after the final doxology. Instead of kneeling in penitence and adoration at the foot of the cross, we are now standing in the joy and power of the resurrection. Meanwhile, the priest is saying quietly, may this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who receive it. And then he quietly, uh, he prays directly to Jesus in one of two ways. And I'll, I'll read those two options now. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who by the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, through your death, give life to the world. Free me by this, your most holy body and blood, from all my sins and from every evil. Keep me always faithful to your commandments and never let me be parted from you. Uh, the other option is, may the receiving of your body and blood, Lord Jesus Christ, not be not bring to me judgment and condemnation, but through your loving mercy, be for me protection in mind and body and a healing remedy. Next, while facing the people, the priest raises the host and chalice, echoing the words of the one who Jesus called the greatest born among me- women, uh, St. John the Baptist, uh, greatest born among men from women, rather. Uh, He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And the people and the priests then respond with the words 
of the centurion to Jesus, who believed that he could save the centurion's daughter, despite being a Gentile pagan. So we have one of the greatest Jews in the world, and then this representative of the Gentiles saying, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And of course, in scripture, soul is daughter, that my my daughter shall be healed. And at this point, the priest then receives Holy Communion and distributes our blessed Lord to uh, under the veil of a sacrament to the faithful gathered who are in a state of grace. Now, I think it's worth investigating. Why do we say amen after receiving Holy Communion? Well, in the second century, St. Justin Martyr writes in his Apologia that after the prayers of Thanksgiving, uh, the, uh, the priest will all and everyone all respond by saying amen. Now, this is not simply a word found at the end of a conversation. It's not like saying, okay, bye, God, after the prayer is finished. As St. Paul writes, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? So it would seem the word amen packs a punch, but what does it mean? Well, amen is a Hebrew word, which means so be it. Uh, St. Augustine translated it as verum est in Latin. In other words, it is true. In a tract explaining the Mass from the Middle Ages, we read this, Amen is a ratification by the people of what has been spoken. And it may be interpreted in our language as if they all said, May it so be done as the priest has prayed. So it's custom in most of the rites of the Catholic Church, both the East and the West, to say Amen after receiving Holy Communion. In the 1962 Masale Romanum, the priest says, Corpus Domino Nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuam in vitam aeternam. Amen. In other words, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto life everlasting. Amen. So even though the communicant doesn't say amen like in the ordinary form of the Mass, the priest has said amen for them. Now, the language of amen seems to be like a contract. When two people enter into an agreement with one another, they may mark it with a handshake and say, so be it, or I agree. Well, is that what's happening at Mass? Certainly, what we're entering into at Mass is far more important, meaningful, lasting, and beautiful. Perhaps more than a contract, the amen shows us that the language of the Mass is that of a covenant. A contract can be broken. A covenant can, cannot be broken, especially when, when God is involved, because God is always faithful to his promises. Now, when we approach our Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist, we're approaching the bridegroom as the bride. We're uttering our wedding vows to the King of Heaven each time we receive Holy Communion. We're saying, I do, when we say, Amen. And the meaning of the word is very close to this understanding. We're using the language of marriage to show that we're accepting the bridegroom into our own body and soul to remain with us always. As husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, the, co- the communicant and our Lord become one in the Eucharist. Communion means one with, and we're becoming more closely joined to the Lord in reception of Holy Communion. Every time we say amen, we should call to mind clearly what we're doing. We're giving our assent of faith. We're saying, okay. We're not, we're not saying, okay, or sure. We're saying, so be it. And do we know what we're saying yes to? Do we know what we're entering into? And our yes to God can't be half-hearted. It can't be wishy-washy. It has to be sure and resolute by his grace. 
And our Lord Jesus is a strong proponent of authenticity and resolution. Right? We hear in, book, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.16, So because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some of the most terrifying words in Scripture. Right? And in the Gospel of St. Matthew, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So let our amen mean amen. Then after Holy Communion, uh, the priest or deacon purifies the sacred vessels, which is something only they can do. And they quietly say this while they're doing that. They say, what is past our lips is food, O Lord. May we possess in purity of heart that what has been given to us in time may be our healing for eternity. And next, the priest invites the people to pray, says the prayer after communion. And this is a special prayer given for the liturgical day, uh, like the collect, which ends the communion rite and the liturgy of the Eucharist more broadly. And then we're brought to the concluding rites, the greeting, blessing, and dismissal. Now, we've just taken part in the liturgy of the Eucharist in which Jesus Christ became substantially, truly, and really present. Having just received him in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, the faithful are living tabernacles. The word Eucharist literally means, in Greek, thanksgiving. And this is what we're doing during the concluding rites. Out of deep gratitude for what our God has done, we spend some time in silence following the communion rite, reflecting on the gift of the Most Holy Eucharist, and then the priest blesses the people assembled. And there's great power in this blessing. The priest acting in the person of Christ the head is blessing the people. In other words, it's Christ himself who blesses us at the end of Mass. During the Mass, where the priest is, there is Christ. As St. Jose Maria Escriva said, wherever the priest is, uh, whoever a priest may be, he is always an altar Christus, another Christ. And the priest acting in the person of Christ, head of his body, blesses those gathered with the power and might of the Holy Spirit. He says, May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And by making the sign of the cross and invoking the Trinity, the priest is sealing us with God's presence. We've been shown mercy in the introductory rites and we glorified God. We were fed with his adorable word in the liturgy of the Eucharist and we received Jesus Christ himself in the Holy Eucharist in the liturgy of the Eucharist. This one single act of worship began with the sign of the cross and now it rightly ends with the sign of the cross. And following the final blessing, the dismissal is given by the priest or deacon. And this is, in fact, where the word mass comes from. Uh, the words in Latin, ite misa est, literally means go, she has been sent. And that she referring to the church. So go, the church has been sent. This word is related to our English word uh, mission, missio. To be sent. Fed by the word in the Eucharist, Jesus fills us with himself, and we are strengthened to go out and share him with the world. The church exists to evangelize, and we are the hands and feet of Christ. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the Great Commission, Jesus says to his apostles in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Likewise, the priest or deacon is acting in the person of Christ, telling us to go as well, 
And so the dismissal makes the ascension anamnetically present to us because the ascension is exactly what happened after the Great Commission. And then the priest, still acting in the person of Christ the head, then processes down the center aisle towards the narthex. Uh, Sometimes a recessional hymn is sung, sometimes it's silent. And technically speaking, the one single act of worship, the Mass, ends with a dismissal. But practically speaking, our celebration of the sacred mysteries ends when the priest reaches the narthex of the church. And this practice of waiting until the priest reaches the narthex highlights the reality that Christ is the presider at Mass acting through the priest. And then, of course, it's very uh, customary, proper to, uh, to kneel in gratitude and thanksgiving and say a little prayer uh, after Mass, just saying thank you to the Lord. So I hope that this series has been a blessing to you, the last five sessions on praying the Mass. We've only just scratched the surface. There's so much more to read and learn about and enter into. Um, But I hope that we all continue in our pursuit of the glory of God and the sanctification of man. I hope that the Mass comes alive to your senses in a more powerful way because of what you've learned here. And I hope uh, that it's a gift to you. And thanks be to God for such a great gift as the Holy Mass. Uh, what a real blessing that we're able to to enter into communion with our Lord and those who are in union with him uh, so beautifully and so tied to history, right? This is not some human invention. This is a divine action that's been divinely instituted uh, by our divine Lord uh, 2,000 years ago and continues to this day as a memorial of his suffering and death. And so we give thanks to God for that. And uh, so if this series has been a blessing to you, please share it with your friends and family. Please share Will Write Catholic podcast and Substack. I'd love to see it continue to grow. It's growing uh, considerably, uh, especially over the last few weeks. So thank you. And if you're new as a subscriber, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, We have 37 states of the United States represented in 21 different countries around the world. I actually saw that about 21% of the people listening to this podcast are from Ireland, uh, which makes me happy. Um, It's actually kind of ironic because I am 21% Irish. Uh, I found that out. So to the 21% of you and from the 21% of me, uh, thank you and God bless you uh, in the Emerald Isle. Um, And to everyone else around the world, uh, Nigeria and, and Kenya and India, uh, all over the place. Thank you for listening. It's, it's wonderful to have you with us in the uh, Will Write Catholic podcast and Substack community. So with that, let's, uh, let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. A glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. <laughs>